In our time today, we're going to, uh, as Pastor Aaron said, take another step into uh, Hebrews, our sermon, God Wrote a Series, and we'll be in chapter 10. We started chapter 10 last week. Pastor Aaron started that with the first 18 verses. Today, we'll do verses 19 through 25 in Hebrews chapter 10, and then we'll close out the chapter next week. But before we do any of that, how about we keep first things first? I'll read the passage for us, and then we'll pray together, and then we'll dig in and see what God wants to teach us today. Sound good? Good. All right. This is the word of the Lord from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Sound City, may we be blessed by the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord God, you're good all the time, and as we gather together today as a community of faith in the strong name of Jesus, we do so expectantly, trusting that your good and perfect word when preached and taught doesn't ever, ever return void. And so we pray toward that end today, that you give us ears to hear, that you would teach us through your word, that you would change our affections this morning, God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, and that you would give us a a really clear vision of what our faith ought to look like and what our life with you ought to look like. God, I pray you give me wisdom and discernment and clarity of thought now as well as uh, so that I might be a a faithful servant to you this morning as a pastor and as a teacher of your word. And we pray all this, God, through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Amen. So for those of you who have been with us for a while, you know that community groups are a pretty big deal to us. Um, We'll talk more about why that is a little bit later in the sermon, but for now, I just want to share a quick story with you about what happened uh, at the end of our community group gathering last Monday night. So like many weeks, uh, some folks had lingered after the group to to fellowship a little bit more, and some folks, I think, were gathering and they they were praying about some stuff going on in a couple folks' life, and so it had gotten a little bit later into the evening. It was starting to get dark out. I think it was probably around 9.30 or so when everybody kind of finally filed out. And so as Steph and I often do, we'll head over to the couch and we'll sit down and we'll begin to kind of debrief in the night and and talk about what we can do and who we need to reach out to and be praying for, things like that. And no sooner had we sat down on the couch and I start getting just bombarded with a bunch of different texts and pictures and uh, Michael and Sam Eller, many of you know them, they're in our community group and there were a bunch of pictures and texts from them because apparently as they had just left our house, um, they they had seen an accident that had happened like right after they turned the corner, leaving our house, leaving our street. And so a lady in a white Jeep had apparently uh, run off the road into these really steep ditches that kind of border some of the streets that are by our house. And even worse, what stopped her wasn't the ditch that she had run into, but the telephone pole that she had hit. And all this happened like seconds after the Ellers left our street and turned the corner. And so Michael, if any of you, those of you who know Michael, being the good soldier that he is, he immediately got out and went to see if he could help this woman. 
And apparently, uh, according to Michael, she was, she was okay, but he was pretty suspicious that she may have uh, been a little bit under the influence. Um, and when he got there to check on her, though, she was already, uh, seemed like she was okay, and she was already busy kind of just getting stuff out of her car. And by this time, some other neighbors had come up as well, and one of the neighbors said that they had called the police. At which point, Michael says, the lady just, like, disappears. She's, she's gone. She had decided to, to bolt, to flee from the scene. And uh, so as I was preparing um, to teach this week and those images in my head, uh, I began to wonder, what caused this woman in this particular situation to respond the way that she did? Or even more generally, in any situation we find ourselves in, what causes one person to respond one way and another person to respond in a different way? Well, in large part, I think it's our beliefs and convictions, isn't it? It's our beliefs and convictions which make up our worldview that are the precursors to all of our choices and decisions. And when this woman who had run off the road, who had fled the scene of the accident, whether she knew it or not, she'd made some worldview decisions in that moment. Her life experiences mixed with her beliefs and her convictions had constructed for her a worldview that she used to make a decision about what to do in that particular situation. And her worldview caused her to prioritize a response of flight from the scene rather than facing what might come if she waited for the police uh, to arrive. Now, let's see if my theory holds here. I bet we can hypothesize all sorts of things about this woman's worldview based on just her response to the situation. For example, uh, would you guys think that her view about right and wrong, about justice and consequences, about honor and truth, would you think she's pretty principled on those things, or you think that might be a little squishy in her worldview? Or what would you think her views are about confession of sin, or sin at all for that matter? I think she's got a high view of what sin is, or uh, some pretty strong convictions about that, or maybe more of a Donald Trump kind of an idea of sin that I just try and avoid sinning so that I don't have to ever have to ask for forgiveness? <laughs> what about, would you guess she has a high view of Scripture? Would you guess she's involved in Bible study on a regular basis or prayer on a regular basis? Now, I don't want to judge her unfairly. We, of course, can't know these things for sure. But without even trying very much, what we were able to just do is reverse engineer what are probably some pretty safe guesses to those questions because deep down, I think, we all know that our choices and our actions are shaped by our beliefs and our convictions, by our worldview. The author of Hebrews is arguing something similar uh, in our passage tonight in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. And in these verses, he's proclaiming to his first hearers and readers and to us by extension that our worldview is inextricably tied to how we live. Or to say it in a really positive way, our orthodoxy leads to our orthopraxy. Our orthodoxy leads to our orthopraxy. Now, many of you know these words, but for those who might not, here's how these words break down. Uh, ortho, as a kind of a prefix, uh, is right or correct, means upright or straight. Doxy means uh, opinion or view or thinking or doctrine, and praxy means praxis or practice, doing, living, things like that. And so when we say that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, what we mean is upright and correct thinking or doctrine leads to upright or correct action or doing or living. The author of Hebrews is arguing in today's text that because of the reality of all the beautiful truths about God, all the good doctrine that he's laid bare before us in the previous nine and a half chapters of this sermon or letter, 
that based on all of that, then we ought to live our lives a certain way if we're Christian, for God's glory and for our good. He's contending with us in these verses that our worldview ought to utterly inform the lives that we live, day by day, moment by moment, thought by thought. And the way that breaks down in our passage today is like this. We've got a little summary slide that'll be up there for you. Verses 19 through 21, in those verses, the author of Hebrews gives us a brief but really profound little theological summary of these deep wells of doctrine that he's been taking us through in the first nine and a half chapters of Hebrews. That's the orthodoxy or right thinking side of the equation in our passage today. Then in verses 22 through 25, we're shown the manner and the means by which that worldview is to be lived out. The manner and the means by which a biblically correct orthodoxy is to lead us into a biblically correct orthopraxy or a right application of our beliefs and our worldview. And so if we were to sum up kind of the big idea the author of Hebrews is wanting us to, to hear and to receive and to really internalize this morning, it would be this. Then in light of the truths about God that he's taught us so far in Hebrews, our orthodoxy, verses 19 through 21, ought to lead us into an orthopraxy, verses 22 through 25, that's grounded in three things, faith, hope, and love. More simply put, the author of Hebrews means to convince us today that life with God requires lives committed to faith, hope, and love. That's the big idea. That's the central proposition of the verses that we're going through today. Life with God requires lives committed to faith, hope, and love. Well, that should be easy, right? Well, we'll find out as we drill down a little bit into the passage and see what God wants to teach us about these three commitments and how we should apply them to our daily life with him. Starting back in verse 19, then, we'll look at 19 and 20 together. And they read, Therefore, brothers, now the word here is flexible, that could be brothers and sisters, so therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And so verse 19 starts with a therefore, and when we see a therefore, the rules of Bible study tell us that we're to ask what it's there for. Very good, very good. So usually a therefore is pointing backward to some truth that the biblical author wants to use as a basis for an argument that he's about to make. And that's kind of what we see happening here as well. We've already noted that verses 19 through 21 operate as sort of a theological summary of what the author of Hebrews has been teaching us for the first many chapters of the book. And so the therefore here points back to all of that, and then it also is referring to this little theological summary that he's built for us in verses 19 through 21 as well. And so here at the beginning of his little three-verse summary of biblical orthodoxy, he unpacks the first of two kind of big doctrinal mega points that he's going to use to ground the life that he's about to prescribe to us in verses 22 through 25. So here's that first point, that through Jesus' once-for-all-time sacrifice, we now have confidence to enter the holy places. Now, some translations say uh, into the most holy place there. If you're not using the ESV, your translation might say most holy place. And the reason they do that is because it's the most holy place part of the tabernacle that's most likely in view here. Now, back in April, Pastor Travis, amidst a bunch of y'alls and eustachuds and other Texas slang... (laughs) He led us through a study of Hebrews chapter 9 where he unpacked a bunch of this tabernacle language and temple language. You might remember that uh, the most holy place or the holy of holies 
was that place in the uh, tabernacle or temple that only the high priest could enter and then only once a year to make sacrifices and to secure a temporary reprieve from God's judgment for the sins of the people. In Hebrews 9.8 says this, By this, meaning the old sacrificial system, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. In other words, as long as that second curtain at the entrance to that most holy place or holy of holies in the tabernacle was still there, then sinners like you and me, we had no access to go in and dwell with God personally. But then, in verse 11, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, verse 12 now, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So it's Jesus' once for all time sacrifice that's in view here in Hebrews 10, 19, and 20, as the author of Hebrews lays out for us his first big point of orthodoxy as a foundation for the life that he's about to call us to in the later verses. And what he's saying to us here in orthodoxy point number one is that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, all that had separated God from humanity was permanently destroyed. And that this was accomplished by the new and living way that Jesus had opened up for us. That's what verse 20 says. So since his flesh was torn and sacrificed for us, we can now in turn dwell with God and be in his presence eternally and permanently. Is that good news to anyone, Sound City? Better news than we even realize, I think. And as the author of Hebrews wrote these inspired verses that we're studying this morning, he no doubt had in mind what had happened to that second curtain inside the temple at the exact moment of Jesus' death. Here in Luke chapter 23, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So as the curtain was torn, it seems that Jesus had accomplished what he'd come to do, doesn't it? And so then he breathed his last. The author of Hebrews is reminding us of all of this in our passage in chapter 10, reminding us of what a really big deal it was that the curtain separating God from mankind was torn down at the very moment that Jesus' blood was shed in a sacrifice for us once for all time. So that with utter confidence, we could now enter into a new and better, most holy place of ongoing and permanent dwelling with our God. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. So with that then, here's our outline so far. And with his orthodoxy and worldview point number one now established, the author of Hebrews can turn his attention to verse 21, where we learn worldview and orthodoxy point number two. The second of these two theological summary points that, again, he's using to ground the three exhortations that we're going to hear about a life with God in verses 22 through 25. So picking up then in verse 21. So because we now have this new access to God, to dwell with God, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 21 says. Now here the author of Hebrews is reflecting back to things that he's taught us in Hebrews 7 and in Hebrews 3. You might recall that it was in Hebrews 7 where we spent a bunch of time talking about our great high priest Jesus and about how Jesus was uh, the kind of high priest who truly fits our need as sinners because he's the only high priest who is utterly 
and perfectly holy, innocent, unstained, and exalted above the heavens and ruling in authority at God's right hand. But 1021 of Hebrews also says that our great high priest, Jesus, is a great priest over the house of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, you might recall that that's language, that God's house language, that's from Hebrews chapter 3, where the author of Hebrews declared Jesus to be the new and better Moses, claiming that Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, but that Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. That means he runs all this, right? Being a completely perfect high priest over God's house means that the church is utterly, fully, completely his. The author of Hebrews is reminding us that Jesus' rule and reign, it extends over the whole community of God's chosen people in all places and times, including all those who together make up the universal or capital C church. So Jesus is our perfect high priest, a priest in full authority over God's house, over his people, and who has given us full access to God through his perfect priestly sacrifice on our behalf. Is that good news? So at this point, the first part of our outline is now complete. The author of Hebrews has teed up the central proposition of our passage by giving us a summary of orthodoxy or right thinking about God in two points. Two points that ground and validate the argument that he's about to make to us, that life with God requires lives committed to faith, hope, and love. Let's pick up our passage again then in verse 22 where we get the first of these three exhortations from the author of Hebrews that's meant to motivate in us a living out of a biblically shaped life with God. Verse 22 reads, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So, since we have this new and living access uh, into relationship with God to go in and dwell with Him because of our high priest, Jesus, according to verses 19 through 21, the text is saying, now we are to draw near to God in faith with a true heart, a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and with a body washed clean with pure water. So the first question maybe that comes to mind from this verse is, what what do we mean when we say draw near to God? Well, the Greek verb here for draw near is proserkomai, and it's a word that means to approach or to go to, to turn to, to appear before, almost like in a court setting, or to occupy oneself with something or someone in an ongoing way. It's it's very much an action or a doing kind of a verb, but that sounds kind of odd, right? How do we do a drawing near? Um, That's difficult for us to understand. Well, it's, it's not uncommon for me to be, uh, find myself in a counseling situation where I'm talking with a couple or an individual who's struggling with something really similar to this. They'll come in and they'll say, oh, I'm really struggling. I'm feeling far from God. I feel like God is not near. And as we talk about that, undoubtedly the conversation will at one point or another turn to me asking them a series of questions. And so I'll say, "Um, so what's your time in God's word look like? Like, is that something that you do regularly, you're committed to, that you're involved in, uh, studying, meditating on, reading God's Word? No? Work's been really busy? Okay. Uh, So what about your time in prayer? Like, that's one of the main ways that we communicate and talk back to God. We receive His Word from uh, reading His Word. We we hear from Him, and then we talk back to Him through prayer. Is that something that you're committed to? No? Okay. Um, And so we'll go and we'll go through a series of questions like that. And... What's always a little puzzling to me is 
that people come and they say, I'm not feeling near to God, but so often we're not making regular time to hear from him or to talk with him in prayer, and then we wonder why we feel like he's far. Drawing near to God in faith here in verse 22 means drawing near through the, the very spiritual disciplines that he's given us through Scripture to accomplish that very thing. But drawing near to him in its fuller sense just means really worshiping him in all of life, including those spiritual disciplines. I've heard it well said that we are always and forever worshiping, and that worship is kind of like this fire hose that we're holding that's always on, and so the question isn't if we're worshiping at any given time, but what direction the hose is pointing in. The question is, what or who are we worshiping in a given moment? So drawing near to him in faith with a true heart, as the verse calls it, means drawing near to him with a heart that evidences our trust and devotion to him. Said another way, faith acts. And a dormant faith that fails to act is no faith at all. Faith acts. And a dormant faith that fails to act is no faith at all. Now, none of us acts in faith toward God in a perfect way, which is why last week's sermon about progress, not perfection, and about our ongoing sanctification on this side of heaven was really good news. Amen? But a true heart for God inaugurated in us as a result of Jesus' once-for-all-time sacrifice necessarily results in a life of increasing faithfulness to God. It's a common refrain in Scripture that God wants our whole heart and that a life committed to faith in God cannot be a life committed to believing certain ideas only while not living them out, while not living out those beliefs and convictions. James 2.19 reminds us, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. James is probably talking to Jewish folks here who are probably chanting the Shema on a regular basis, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And so they're saying, we're monotheists, we're not polytheists like all of you. And James is saying, awesome, you believe that God is one. That's not going to get you there. That doesn't mean you're in right relationship with God. It's our choices and our life patterns that reveal our worldview. It's our choices and life patterns that reveal what's in our hearts, that reveals our true commitment to a life of faith in Jesus. So let me ask you, how's your heart, Sound City? How's your heart this morning? It's worth considering, are there areas in your life where you're knowingly refusing to draw near to God in faith? He's given them to you in the scriptures, ways to draw near to him, and you're refusing to draw near to him in faith. It's worth considering. As we continue on then and reach the end of verse 22, we see described in even greater detail what a true heart of faith looks like. The verse says it looks like a heart sprinkled clean and bodies washed pure. Again, this is a tabernacle. This is sacrifice language, isn't it? And the first readers and hearers of Hebrews would have been reminded right away by verse 22 of the promises of God delivered through his prophets. Promises of God like this one from Ezekiel 36, 25, where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Or God's promise from Ezekiel 11, where God says, And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be 
my people, and I will be their God. Now, this is really good news for us, too, that God, through Jesus' once-for-all-time sacrifice, has done the heavy lifting for us, that God has bought access for us to come in and dwell with him forever. But if you're his, if you belong to him, if you trust him, then the heart that he's made new and clean in you will increasingly overflow into a life of faithfulness to him. Sound City, for God's glory and our joy, life with God requires a commitment to a life of steadfast faith. Now at this point, our outline looks something like this, and we're beginning to see how our right thinking, our orthodoxy, acts as a basis for our orthopraxy or the right living out of our faith. And we've covered the first of three critically important exhortations that the author of Hebrews is giving us in today's passage in order to encourage in us a biblically faithful life with God. Now, picking up now in verse 23, we find the second of three exhortations. Now, when I say exhortations, those are the let us verses that we're going through. And anytime we see that, that's an exhortation. And what an exhortation is, though, it's, it's emphatic. It's almost like a polite command, in a way. It's an emphatic pleading that the author of Hebrews is giving us each time he says, let us do this or that. Now, picking up again in verse 23 then, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So here we find the second part of the author of Hebrews' big idea for the day in this passage, and we see that life with God requires a commitment to holding fast to our eternal hope, our hope in Jesus. The author of Hebrews here is telling us that We need to have a tight grip. We need to keep a close watch on our hope in Christ. Our hope should be unwavering, the passage says, meaning our hope in Jesus should persist in this inflexible, this unbending kind of a way. Let me ask you, as you think about going about your day-to-day, would you say that you are holding fast to your hope in Jesus? Would someone outside looking in at your life say, now there's someone who's holding fast to their hope in Jesus from day to day? Okay, now let me ask the question from a slightly different angle, slightly different emphasis, and see how this grabs you. Uh, How's the confession of your hope going? How's the proclamation of your hope going from day to day? Anyone getting uncomfortable yet? Having an unwavering internal commitment to the life of faith is surely in and of itself part of what it means for us to keep our hope in Jesus, but there's a confessional, a verbal, a proclamational part of this exhortation as well. The verse says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So this is those times when you're at a grocery store, you're at Starbucks, or you're at school, or your place of business, or the dry cleaners, or for Pastor Aaron, your your CrossFit cult, or wherever it is that that you go and you interact and you see um, those who don't know Jesus, in those moments, are you intentionally praying for, looking for opportunities to confess your hope in Jesus, to proclaim your hope in Him? That's not an easy one for me either. I'll I'll confess to you. I mean, that's one that I'm personally always fighting to grow in. Yet verse 23 reminds me and us that the reason we can hold fast to the confession of our faith 
is because of our promise-keeping God and his faithfulness. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, the Apostle Paul reminds the church, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then in the, in the benediction at the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, the Apostle Paul in chapter 5, verses 23 and 24 offers us this blessing. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. That's more good news for us today. Sound City, may we hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for our promise-keeping God is and will continue to be faithful to us. And because he's faithful to us, we ought to be willing to prayerfully and regularly ask this of him, God, would you, what would you have me do to grow in being steadfast in my hope in you? What would you have me do to grow in my confession of my hope in you? Is that in any way part of your regular prayers today? Are you willing to make that part of your prayers day to day? So our outline now is getting pretty full. And the author of Hebrews' central proposition has almost come fully into view but for now, what we can see clearly so far is just the first two parts of it, that life with God requires lives committed to the life of faith and to an active and steadfast hope, number two, in Jesus. So as we move into verses 24 and 25, we find the author of Hebrews' third of three exhortations about how we're to live out a faithful life with God. So starting in verse 24 then. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So, pausing again, since we've got new information to recap. Uh, so, life with God means for us first, an active life of faith, motivated by the new heart given to each of us that Jesus has made clean through his once-for-all-time sacrifice. Life with God, secondly, means for us an unbending hope in Christ and an unwavering confession of that hope. And now third, we learn that life with God means for us a commitment to the hard work of stirring one another up to love and good deeds. Well, let's start there. Let's look at this idea of stirring up. What does it mean to stir one another up? It sounds kind of unpleasant, doesn't it? Like something I would tell my boys not to do. Stop stirring up your brothers before bed. Well, the Greek word behind the English translation of stir up here is paroxus mas, and the nuance of that word is something like this, to incite or to stimulate, to motivate. The King James actually translates this as provoke, which is a pretty good rendering of what's meant here, stimulate, provoke, motivate, incite. So that's what stir up means, but then the next question that logically we come to is, so what does that mean that we're to stir up or provoke people? What are we supposed to provoke them to do? And according to our verse, we're to be provoking them, stirring them up to lives of showing love. And we're to be provoking them or stirring up in them lives of doing good. But that also begs further definition. What more specifically then does it mean to stir one another up to lives of showing love and doing good? Well, the author of Hebrews was kind enough to give us at least a thumbnail sketch of that here in verse 25. So we'll go there now, and we'll start, though, at 24 just for context. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Then continuing in verse 25, by not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So at least in summary form, the way we're to provoke one another, stir one another up to lives of showing love and doing good is by two things. Number one, not neglecting to meet together regularly in order to be stirred up. And number two, by encouraging one another. So let's take a minute and dig into each of these strategies a little bit further. Number one is not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So we've got this little bit of a double negative here of not neglecting, which of course means that in order to provoke one another, to stir one another up to love and good works, we do need to meet together. And apparently like a lot, if we think that there's any chance that the day of Christ's return might be drawing near. And let's be honest. We look at the news today, you look at our world today, is there anyone sitting in here who is not at least a little suspicious that that day might be coming soon? Yeah. So we ought to be meeting together regularly and often to stir up one another to showing love and doing good. Then the second strategy mentioned here in verse 25 is that we're to be encouraging one another as we meet together regularly and often to stir one another up. Now, there's a couple really important things for us to dig into here that we're going to spend some time on. First, let me ask you, how many of you have heard uh, a sermon on this verse before where you've heard it used to teach about the importance of regular church attendance? Anyone? Okay, a few hands, including Pastor Aaron's. That's good. Uh, Yeah, that meeting together in verse 24, that that might be about Sunday church attendance. That's a natural conclusion to draw from the text. And I think it's a fair one, especially when we look at uh, throughout the rest of the scriptures and how they talk about the deep importance of God's people gathering together regularly to hear the preached word. So while that's surely part of what might be in the mind of the author of Hebrews here and what he wants to encourage, it's not the only thing, and it's probably not even the main thing that he's talking about. So let me show you what I mean by asking you a question. Do verses 24 and 25 say that we're to meet together regularly to be encouraged or to encourage one another? To be encouraged or to encourage one another? To encourage one another, right? So our meeting together regularly and often, it appears that in that there's supposed to be some kind of a reciprocal encouraging that's going on rather than more of a one-way situation where the word is preached and then all are encouraged by the one. Now stay with me in this, it'll all come back together because it gets even more interesting as we look at this word encourage in verse 25 in more detail. Now here the Greek word behind the English is parakaleo, and it's a word that I think will be a bit surprising to we English-speaking folks uh, once we've dug into it a little bit. The nuance here of this word is uh, instilling another with courage or cheer. Now that's the closest part of the definition of the Greek that's um, something like what we might be familiar with. But equally so, what this word carries with it is ideas of to call to one's side or perspective, to exhort, to strongly encourage, to uh, implore, to urge, to offer a warning, to offer a reproof. Now, I think in our culture, encouragement mostly conjures up images of participation awards or of uh, not having red ink on your student's homework Uh, and your kids' school assignments anymore for fear of this great damage that it's going to do to them. Uh, The way we typically use encouragement around uh, in our culture, typically 
makes it seem like only the happiest of little thoughts could be captured inside this thing that we call encouragement, or else it must be something other than encouragement. But when we really look at the dynamic range of this word, like we are right now, the elasticity of this word, it shows us something really different, doesn't it? And quite honestly, the picture that it shows us makes a lot more sense of what verse 24 is saying when it says, stir up one another to love and good works. So let's apply it. Um, think about this. Because if meeting together regularly and often to stir one another, one another up means to instill courage in one another in the Lord, to exhort one another, to implore one another, to strongly urge one another in the direction of Christ-likeness and into a faithful life with God, what could be more encouraging than that? What could be more encouraging than that? This kind of exhortation from the author of Hebrews actually fits perfectly with the life together that the Bible calls us to as a community of Jesus' disciples, doesn't it? Let me ask you, have you guys ever stopped to look at all the verses in Scripture, all the instances in the Bible where we see these words one another? Sometimes it's called one anothering or all the one another verses of the Bible. There's dozens of these commands and exhortations that are given to us in Scripture as part of God's discipleship plan for us, and they sound strikingly similar to what we've been talking about as we've been unpacking what it means to stir up one another to love and good deeds and to encourage one another to love and good works. Now let me take a minute and just summarize a sampling of some of these one another verses for us. So, According to the scripture, a faithful life with God is meant to include our regular pursuit of things like this, loving one another, worshiping God with one another, teaching one another, confessing sin to one another, encouraging one another, admonishing one another, living in humility with one another, holding one another accountable, serving one another, praying for one another, forgiving one another, bearing one another's burdens, speaking the truth and love to one another, being patient with one another, showing hospitality to one another, honoring one another, submitting to one another, being kind, compassionate, and caring to one another, and actively pursuing harmony and unity with one another. And we could go on and on because there are dozens of these one another passages in Scripture. Now, I had to shrink them down a little bit just to get them all on the screen so that you could look at them all at once. And remember, this is only some of them. Um, But as you're looking at them all on the screen together, let me ask you a question. How many of these things can you do while you're in a room like this listening to a sermon staring at the back of someone else's head? Very, very, very few, right? So now, after all that, I'm hoping that it won't take much convincing when I tell you that when verse 24 and 25 tell us that we're to meet together regularly to stir one another up to love and good works by encouraging one another, that it means more than just gathering on a Sunday morning. Have I at least convinced you of that? So in other words, to practice the kind of biblical community that our passage in Hebrews exhorts us to, we need another regular gathering time to do that. One where we're not staring at the back of one another's heads. One where we can live out what Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 and all the other one another passages in the scriptures are calling us to as part of our life with God. So let me ask you, when is this other regular gathering time happening for you in your life presently? Who are you practicing the one another's with on a regular basis as you see the day drawing near? Who's stirring you up regularly to a life of showing love and doing good? 
What we're seeing here in our text this morning and really throughout all of Scripture is that for the Christian, our whole life with God ought to be characterized by life together with one another in these difficult but really precious relationships where we purpose to instill courage into one another's souls, not only through fellowship and kindness and hospitality, but also through exhortation and warning and reproof and speaking the truth in love. According to the Bible, we don't really have the option to just choose the one another's that we like and then leave the rest. Let's move on to some other scriptures that talk about a similar idea. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. And so when iron sharpens iron, what's happening? There's going to be friction, right? There's going to be heat, even sparks at times. But without those things happening, even if they might be uncomfortable, that sharpening isn't happening, right? Now, Proverbs 27, 6 reminds us, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Sound City, if your friends will only and ever tell you what you want to hear, then they might not be very good friends. Then in Psalm 141.5, the psalmist says these sweet words, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Let my head not refuse it. Man, that's good. How many of you would say that that's the way that you live? That you welcome the rebuke of a godly friend as a kindness to you? Sound City, when we prioritize the messy business of gathering regularly and often to stir up one another to lives of showing love and doing good, we're also committing ourselves to the sparks and the heat and the friction that always accompanies biblical community rightly done. Now, God has grown Stephanie and I a ton over the years through participation in and through leading um, some pretty amazing community groups. God's been really faithful to us in that. He's, he's been gracious to us. And these have been groups that have been focused very intentionally on trying to do life together in the ways that we're talking about today. And what I know that I know about the times when we've been obedient to God's call to live out our life with him in this way is twofold. I know that it will often not be easy, but it will always be worth it. I know that I know that it will not be easy to live this kind of life with God, but that it will always be worth it. And in my experience, as God has taught us how to lean into conflict with other Christ followers and into the other kinds of stirring up that we're talking about here today, the end result that God has almost always seen fit to bring into the lives of those willing to really stick with it and chase after this kind of biblical community together is growth in the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. It's growth in Christ-likeness and sanctification, growth in humility, growth in kindness and self-sacrifice, deeper relationships and trust amongst those involved in that stirring up, and deeper individual relationships with God for all involved. It was just last Monday night, the same night as the accident that we were talking about earlier, where uh, someone in our group risked to confess some sin that they'd fallen back into. And I think you could probably ask anyone in our group, but you can almost tangibly, tangibly sense the Holy Spirit and his activity in that moment. And as this person prayed at the end of our group time together, 
He was praying and saying things like, God, thank you. I didn't have this kind of community a year ago. So he's offering up these prayers of thanksgiving for having the kind of biblical community where they could come in and confess sin and receive grace and encouragement and help. Friends, the kind of messy relationships the author of Hebrews is prescribing to us today are meant to be an important part of our life with God. They're a kindness to us. They're God's grace to us if we'll embrace the mess, if we'll prioritize the gathering together regularly and often for the stirring up and encouragement that we're all called to. So let me ask each one of you, each one of us, how are you doing at pursuing the kind of relationships that Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 is exhorting us to? Are you in a community group currently where these things are being honestly and regularly fought for and pursued? Or if you're not in one, then will you get in one? Or will, or will you at least commit to finding some other context or group or approximation of, of a group where you can practice those things as part of your life with God? Or maybe you're sitting in here, and as we're talking about this, you're wondering if God's maybe calling you to help build or lead or co-lead or host a new community group where people can gather together regularly to love faithfully and to stir up one another. Well, if that sounds like you at all, even if it's you're feeling like, I just want to help my group do this, I don't want to lead it, but I feel convicted that our group needs to go there, and I just want to be a help with that, even if that's what God's putting on your heart right now, I'd encourage you, we've got a six-week training coming up, our next community group training coming up on June 22nd, and you'll want to sign up for that. If God's putting something in your heart about helping the group that you're in, co-leading or leading or building or hosting a new group, any of those things, and we'll give you some more information about that at the very end of our time together and how you can get signed up for that. But the point of us digging into all that detail about what it means to stir up one another to lives of love and good works is that we would really understand and soak in the author of Hebrews' third exhortation to us in today's passage. And now that we've worked through all of that, our outline of the author of Hebrews' argument is complete. And so in 10, 19 through 25, this is the case that he's pled before us. That since we now have free and living access to God through the blood of Christ, and because we have a perfect high priest who guarantees our confident hope of salvation in Jesus, that because of those truths about God, our lives ought to be lives that are increasingly committed to drawing near to God through the spiritual disciplines and every other means that bring sanctification into our lives through faith, lives increasingly committed to an unwavering hope in Jesus and the confession of that hope to others, and lives increasingly committed to the hard work of being used by God as an instrument in his hand to disciple one another, to encourage one another, and to, with gentleness and kindness, even provoke one another into lives of showing love and doing good. Sound City, lives like these, they're a high calling. And praise God that his expectation for us on this side of eternity is hard-fought progress rather than perfection. But this high calling of a biblically-shaped life with God while challenging is also, remember, his grace to us, his kindness to us, our best hope of bringing glory to him and our best hope of the life of peace and contentment and joy that Jesus offers to us. 
Sound City, life with God requires lives committed to faith, hope, and love. Let us be a people who not only understand this important truth, but who also are committed to living it out together. Amen? Well, with that, we're going to turn now to a time of responding to what God's been teaching us in these verses today. And we'll do that in a number of ways. First, we'll respond through giving. And so if our financial stewards uh, would come, we'll begin our response through giving. Now, we don't want to be uh, people who worship our money, but a people who worship joyfully and uh, generously with the money that God has allowed us to have. And so that's why we give generously and joyfully to the work that he's doing here in and through us at Sound City. And one of the key verses that we look at when we think about worshiping God through giving week to week is 2 Corinthians 9-7, which says this, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, if you're our guest, please know that while we'd never want to take away an opportunity for you to uh, worship and serve God through giving, you're certainly under no obligation to do that with us here today. We're just glad that you're here worshiping with us. But for the rest of us, just a reminder of the various ways that you can give in addition to the uh, baskets that are coming around, including by text. You, we have an option for you to text to give. There's a number and information on the screen, and then you can follow the instructions that get sent to you. You can also give online by going to scbc.do slash give. That's a way you can get right to that page on our website. And giving on our website through our website portal is really helpful to us if you want to make sure you're scheduling your giving, which is a help to us. And also if you want to make sure that the church is getting as much of your gift to us as possible from the perspective of bank fees and stuff like that. So that's a great place and a great way for you to give. Finally, there are give envelopes at the Connect Desk in the foyer for you if uh, those would be helpful to you. Now, in a moment, uh, you'll also see the communion element baskets being passed. And I'm just going to ask you to hold on to those elements once you get them, not take them quite yet, and then we'll take them together after I pray here in a minute. I also want to share a few response questions and prayer points drawn from the message today for you to consider this week in your community groups and for personal reflection. These are printed in your weekly as well, so don't worry about trying to write them down, uh, but I'll read them for us here as well. Number one. Discuss with your group the difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy and the relationship that should exist between them, and consider and discuss how this relationship plays out in your own life with God. Number two, what does it mean that because of Jesus we have access to enter the most holy place, like it says in 1019? In what ways are you and what ways are you not taking advantage of this access you now have to draw near to God? Discuss that with your groups. Number three, what are the tangible ways you sense God may be wanting you to grow in your commitment to the life of faith? Discuss that with your group. And then number four, what does it mean to stir up or provoke one another to love and good works? And then who are the people in your life that you're doing this with? And who would name you as someone that is regularly stirring them up to love and good works? Now, we're committed to being a praying people as well, and so a few prayer points for you for this week too. Number one, let's be praying that as individuals and as a church, we would grow in our commitment to lives of faith, hope, and love. And then number two, let's be praying that as individuals and as a church, we would trust God's instruction to gather regularly and often to pursue biblical community, and that we would never fail to prioritize the hard work of stirring up one another to love and good works. 
Now, another way we'll respond is through communion. And this is a time for all Christians uh, to come and gather together and receive the Lord's Supper. And this supper is a memorial meal for us. The bread reminding us of Jesus' body that's broken for us and the juice reminding us of his blood that is shed for us. In fact, the scriptures talk about this remembering, this memorial meal uh, pretty regularly. And one of the key passages is this one from 1 Corinthians 11, which says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, it looks like everybody's got the communion elements by now, so let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll respond through song and worship to Jesus, and then at that point, feel free to go ahead and take the elements as you see fit. We go ahead and stand with me, and then we'll pray, and then we'll respond. And Father God, the life you've called us to, it, it's a life that takes work and effort and discipline but life with you and the way your word prescribes is also your grace to us. It's also a kindness to us, as the psalmist says, like a cleansing and anointing oil on our heads. God, I pray that we would be a people who would never refuse that gift of your grace and that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would lead us increasingly into lives committed to faith and hope and to stirring up one another to showing love and doing good in all of life. We thank you for your kindness to us and your love for us through this teaching this morning, God. And we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.